talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions and games. People are not going to ever forgive us for this bit. It's gone on too long. It's gone on too long. Okay. More importantly, on today's show, we're discussing visual design. Uh, Visual design is a game design tool that can kick off imaginative, engaging, and eye-catching games. uh, And they consider the visual impact potential of the medium. That's essentially what we're going to be discussing today, and I'm really excited for it. Uh, This is going to be a little bit more of a board game design conversation than Jake and I typically have on the show, though we have had a couple of these, maybe one so far. And I think that these are a really nice opportunity for Jake and I to sort of talk about uh, the topics we cover on the show, maybe typically, but from a different angle, or in this case, a topic that we probably would never discuss on the show uh, in a typical episode of Decision Space, talking about visual design. Um, It might tie into decisions a little bit, but I think this will be more of a conversation about game design, a prompt that you can use if you're curious about uh, designing your own games to sort of kick off a design, or maybe a way that you can think about games that you already play and think about why certain games make an impact on you uh, and that you hadn't realized before. Yeah, we asked, we said, hey, do y'all want us to do more game design focused episodes? And the two of you that responded said yes. So <laughs> if you're not here for this, let that be a lesson to you that, you know, you can engage with us by uh, emailing our show at decisionspot@gmail.com. You can join the Discord. There's a link in the description of this very podcast. And we have a form that you could submit questions to through our website, which is decisionspacepodcast.com. I will also say for our pre-planners out there, the people who like to play games with us, and you could do that uh, at the Discord that Jake mentioned, uh, you could pre-plan and play uh, an upcoming game with us like Bonfire, a game we'll be covering not next week, but probably the week after. Uh, And you could even play Point Salad with us in a little uh, card drafting, open-faced point collection game from AEG that we'll probably cover after Bonfire or maybe before. I don't know. But those two games are coming up. You should be excited. They're both really good. And I know I'm really excited to talk about both of them. And I think Jake is really excited to talk about both of them too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm also looking forward to our episode next week when we're having Jamie Stegmeyer back onto the podcast to talk about our top 10, which is actually going to be five, waning decision space games. So that should be a really fun episode, and I'm, I'm super excited for that. So definitely plan to tune in next week as well. Maybe it should be a top 15 in that case. I think we should call it top 10 because people click on that, and then <laughs> we can just let them know that it's clickbait once <laughs> we start talking in the podcast. <laughs> well, okay, we'll sort it out. We'll sort it out. But onto the topic, visual design. So what is visual design? What does that mean? Um, so... I'm going to define this loosely as that visual design is how a game occupies the space where we play them and how a game occupies it is also vital to our experience of it, right? Um, So put differently, the shape of a game shapes our experience playing it. um, And roughly, vaguely, when you're designing a game from a visual design perspective, the designer doesn't start with theme or mechanisms, but instead maybe imagines how the game will occupy space on the table physically 
at different points in the game and then designs the components and rules needed to guide their players to that destination. I think this is a really powerful tool uh, that can create interesting games because if you imagine a physical form that a game could take and then design a game around that, you might be able to imagine something that you've never seen a game take that shape before or maybe a, a, a shape on a board that you've never seen before. Um, I will say that I don't think this, if you... Everything that I've said makes you think this will be an, an episode on art or graphic design. This is not that episode. I think that we're going to try to talk about more specifically. And, you know, someone might in the comments say, well, actually, a, a lot of graphic designers ends up infecting the visual design of games. I'm like, totally fair. But I think where I'm trying to come at this episode, maybe Jake, we'll see, um, is from the idea of you're, I'm designing a game, you're designing a game. How can you use the medium of game design to do something differently with thinking about how that game will physically occupy space and what elements there, what components you'll have and how they'll be existing in that space? Yeah, I think that's a really good description of what we're talking about. Um, and I don't know how relevant this is, but somebody I think I was seeing in some Discord, maybe not ours, maybe the Board Game Barrage Discord or, or another one, but somebody was posting a lot of like, images that were uh, AI art images mm. and they had like typed in board game terms into some of the more powerful ones. And, and so the, you know, and this is not to start a debate about, you know, is AI art or, you know, valuable or not or whatever, but it was spitting out these like really high quality images of like AI, you know, invented board game, just boards and mm -hmm. a lot of them just looked like, I want to play that game, you know, like knowing nothing about the designer, knowing nothing about the rules, but just seeing like the visual manifestation of like what the board looks like and the different types, types of, you know, zones and spaces you can presumably move into made me, you know, it really like got the gears turning for me about like, wow, some of these games look really fun uh, and some other ones not. So I think there is something to, to this, um, kind of concept of visual design, you know, and it might be, you know, just even in, in some ways that like our, our brains are subconsciously perceiving, you know, the space uh, and visuals of games, you know, before we're even actually like consciously deciding if, if we think that's something we want to engage with or not. Yeah, like when we view anything, we're we're trying to understand the relationship between things and whatever we're looking at. Right, right? Your like brain at is completing a puzzle you're not actually totally. like observing everything that you're seeing yeah definitely and i think that one thing that is so interesting about games independent of the art that's there or whatever when you look at them like your brain's already trying to solve that puzzle so as a designer you can take advantage of that and create a puzzle that someone hasn't seen before or create a puzzle in a different way and i think that i kind of want to emphasize this point with that you as a designer or like i as a designer um, or Jake, you as a designer, have yeah. agency over how how a game ultimately gets made. Because I think that it's really important to state that y there's tons of people involved in, in games. And when games are produced, they're not just... The end product isn't typically the product of just one person, right? There are auteur games, but usually there's lots of hands in the pot. But like, oftentimes if a designer comes up with a way that something should exist in a prototype, that just ends up being what happens. So... To illustrate this point, I, there's this awesome story. It's a GDC talk that I've mentioned a lot of times on the show because I think it's a really good one by Susan McKinley Ross, the designer of Quirkle. And in that, she mentions how one time she was pitching a game and she pitched the game in a vibrant purple box. Um, 
and the, the the publisher loved the game and they ultimately published the game in a vibrant purple box. Um, and oftentimes I don't think about sort of typically when I'm pitching games, they end up being pitched in plastic backies. Um, and maybe that's a mistake, <laughs> but I think this story does a good job of illustrating that like how, like the decisions that you make in present in presentation from the very beginning can just be carried along if those match sort of what should be there or how the game feels. Um, so I think if someone I'm kind of speaking to the detractors right now who are saying like, no, this is more graphic design. I think that designers have agency in how things end up looking because function is so important in games. Right. Yeah. And uh, important caveat though, we don't necessarily, or not necessarily, we just don't know the inner workings on how a lot of the games that we play came yeah. to exist. We don't know the yeah. whole story there. So we're, it's impossible for us to sit here and we're going to talk about some games that we think do visual design in a really interesting way from the perspective of looking at the end prog, you know, end product that we can't tell you, Oh, this was definitely Stefan Feld who had like laid out the board in this way. You know, we don't know at what point that was changed or not changed or, you know, who, who was involved with that. So important caveat, uh, I, yeah. I think, but I do agree with you. Um, you know, that certainly that first impression is really key. And I think, you know, a lot of this for me is going to come down to like how the design and layout, visual design of a game kind of like directs players and clues players into things in ways that just rules alone uh, don't do or don't do as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and the one other thing I want to say on that point, you, you know, you kind of invoke me as a designer and a lot of people listening to this might say, Jake, you're not a board game designer. And to that, I would say, have you not seen the 2020 nine card print and play challenge game that i made called boarding group um and and secondly i was just this past week invited to sit on a panel at an upcoming 2023 board game convention on game design so i am credentialed you know to there and back step aside and step aside (laughs) critics step aside (laughs) and there i've heard there could even be surprises in the future yeah, that's true. Yeah. TV. So, you know, I like doing, I like thinking about it. I like doing it. That was just a yeah. joke though. Let's get into the actual conversation. <laughs> to- okay, let's do this. I think, so at the the top of the show, I think let's talk a little bit more about some of what we've been talking about, Jake. Like the, mm-hmm. why is this helpful? Why does it matter? It's et cetera. And then we'll get into like our 10 game examples and talk a little bit more meatily about them. Does that work for you? Yeah, it sounds great. Okay. So why, why should we even care about this? I think that maybe we've covered this a little bit, uh, but I think when I'm looking for games that intrigue me that I want to play, how they look on the table is a key part of that, right? Like word of mouth about games matters. uh, The designer matters. Certainly the graphic design and the art impact me, but especially when I'm engaging with games in physical spaces, like if I'm just walking through a convention hall, it's often the most interesting looking game on a table that ends up grabbing my attention not always the game that would necessarily be the biggest hit of the con, right? Like the thing that visually looks different is going to grab my attention and sort of say, oh, I'm intrigued in that. I want to look at that. So in my mind, it's kind of like, it's a powerful tool to grab people's attention with regards to your to your game. Totally. I think that's an important point. Um, and I think it's something you sort of hear other people in this, you know, board game design and board game criticism space, like talk about, when about their plays like yeah we were playing this at you know this convention and everyone started gathering around our table to watch 
Um, and I do think that's a selling point for a game for like many people. And I think that also speaks to Cult of the New a little bit of like this like inherent urge or appeal to be like playing the game that other people want to be playing right now. You know, so, oh, I'm sitting here playing this and other people are just like watching me because it looks so fun. Um, You know, I think that's something that really appeals to a lot of people. But I do just push back ever so slightly. I think a lot of times people just say like, oh, it's because of, you know, it's like art, right? Like, okay, this has like really striking art and graphic design. And I do think that, you know, can be a big part of it as well. Though, of course, it manifests in different ways. I definitely think that that... Yeah, in terms of like the visual representation of a game, absolutely, right? Maybe we could just, as an example though, I think I'm going to invoke a game that I'm going to talk about later, which is Azul. I think Azul is a game with beautiful art, great graphic design, and just from a visual design perspective, it's really interesting on the table, right? Like you have all of these factory tile spaces in the middle and they're all circular and they get filled with these differently colored cute like cubes squares then you have your own personal play space things are getting pushed to the middle it's a very dynamic looking game as the game is played and i think for me that's partially why people typically say like azul is so beautiful it's it's because of the art being beautiful it's because the graphic design being beautiful but also because it has such a unique shape when it's sitting on the table itself or at least that's part of what i like about azul yeah that's jake's having a harder time with that example it's an interesting example because like I think I don't want to like do this too much, but here at the top, like, again, I think that kind of goes back to this idea of like, we don't know what decisions were made and when, because I think so much of the appeal visually of Azul is like the production decisions made by plan B games, right? Where Azul could have been visually designed the exact same way with like cardboard chits, right? You have square cardboard pieces on the table, visual designs exactly the same, but I think when people think of Azul, like they're thinking about those starburst sized and shaped like glossy tiles, which is a production choice, not right. No, definitely. I think that's a really big part of that. And maybe the design itself didn't even include the layout of the of the circular factory tiles in the middle of the table. Right. But for me, where that game ended up and part of it being visually appealing beyond the graphic design is how those factory tiles fill out the table is how you have that personal player board and the movement of the tiles to the center so i totally agree with you i'm not going to sit here and tell you that like the way that specific objects are oriented on the table are the only reason why i find is well attractive the art and the graphic design do a lot of lifting maybe michael keesling said we're going to do this with like high quality starburst size tiles or i'm taking my genius game somewhere else Maybe, but even beyond that, just the way <laughs> stuff is laid out on the table, the way the oh, tiles get That's the last center, time I'm going to make that point about we don't know who did this or what uh, or who's responsible for it, because I think that's something we could say about literally every game we're going to talk about. Um, and ultimately, that's not really the point, right? The point is we have this like end product with striking, catching visual design that has certainly heightened the game of Azul to a place and stature in the hobby above what it would be with game. With, uh, of a game with the exact same mechanisms, but laid out and, and visually designed differently. So I have another example that I think illustrates this point a little bit. Uh, okay. And I would be willing to wager that in this example, the designer did just dis- when they pitched the game, when they wrote the rule book, that they suggested the game exist in this way. 
And that example is Lost Cities. And I think that how a game occupies a space defines the relationship we have with it, right? And the way we have with the object of the game itself. So I think that Lost Cities having that board where the, the board is between the two players in the center of the table. And then on either side of the board are the player's personal cards. And then on top of the board are cards that could belong to either player. Um, I think the board acting as a visual divider between the two players and that the that board being the shared the space for shared cards is a great example of like visual design illustrating important points about the game and how it works. And again, I think that that probably was in place from the beginning of the design. And I think it emphasizes that sort of tug of war and competition over the cards in that shared space in a in a useful way maybe not the mm -hmm. most impactful like when you look at it it's not going to be eye-catching but i think it has a utilitarian quality to it of what we're talking about that it's really effectively doing what it needs to do and maybe the board wasn't there right like maybe in kinesia's design of lost cities cosmos came in and said oh we could do a board and if we do that it will really enhance the quality and look and feel but those cards were always going to be laid out in the middle between the two players sort of like shot and todd and that alone kind of illustrates that point in a powerful way yeah i think we talked about that actually on our episode about lost cities because that game certainly could be a deck of cards you know like the board yeah. doesn't actually do anything you know it, it just sits there as like this dividing line um but it certainly makes for, you know, a nicer on the table experience. And I think like, you know, having that sense of like ownership of like, once I place this down over here, it's mine, you know, you can't touch it. And I'm yeah. committing to this. It, I think it does, you know, the vis that visual touch heightens it a little bit. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm saying vis visual so many times on this episode. People are probably going crazy right now. Someone create a counter. Yeah. I guess it's too late in the episode to ask for a tally, but here we are. Maybe you could go back if you're really committed. What's another word for visual? Uh, Look. Yeah. Yeah. Get your, get busy on Google while I talk about this real quick. So kind of the jumping off point for this whole conversation was that this one of the games that I've designed uh, and has subsequently been published is Enchanted Plumes, a small box card game from Calliope Games, the designer of Sorrow. Uh, it came out in 2021, last year. Um, and I think Enchanted Plumes is a really good example of what I'm talking about because Enchanted Plumes is a card game in which every card in the game is a feather and you're laying those feathers out on the table to create plumage of different peacocks. Um, and Yeah, that's a really good optical effect. Great. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> Synonym plumes. Um, I So in coming up with this game, it was sort of this twofold idea of like, I jokingly, I thought to myself, oh, I should make a peacock mating game because that's, I, I don't, I was trying to think of novel themes and it was just a theme that jumped into my head. I had gone to this really cool peacock, Jake is giving the funniest <laughs> looks, this really cool uh, garden in Austin. There were tons of peacocks there. I don't know, Jake. I don't know. But at the same time, and it's it was, interesting, yeah, you know, because like peacock mating wouldn't be the first thing to jump into many. It would not heads. be the first thing to jump, but into it your was for you, so you know <laughs> that says something. But the other thing was sort of that exact visual image, right? This table full of cards mm. laid out in triangles in the shape of plumes with made up of feathers, like that. That was the idea that I wanted to try to create and make real through the design of this game. So then it created this powerful structure for me to use that as kind of a prompt and go back and try to design a game that could lead to these differently sized peacock plumes on a table 
laid out in a methodical way, but at the end you get to sort of stand up and admire what you, this like beautiful thing that you've made. Um, so yeah, that's an example of me usually using visual design where it was sort of like, I want the game to ultimately take this shape. What rules do I need to put in place such that the game can end up taking that shape in the long run? And that's how I got to these sort of like in Enchanted Plumes, you play the biggest row first and you taper down. Uh, so if you have five cards in the top row, you're going to have four in the next, then three, then two, then one. So just by sort of knowing that I wanted to create these shapes, it helped me get to that next part of the rule. So when I say that visual design can be a design prompt, right, you can just sort of imagine what you want your game to end up looking like maybe in the end and how you can get there is the fun of tweaking with your mechanics and your design, gotcha. um, which is different yeah. than starting with theme or mechanics. Well, I mean, you had, you, you kind of said you did start with an idea for a theme, right? Like that's what this is true. Was the, that was the first spark. Yeah. And then that from that, you were able to build this visual in yeah. your head. So that's very similar to, kind of how I came up with the idea for my game boarding group, which I'm invoking a second time in these episodes. So I just want to be really clear, not a great game. <laughs> um, but yeah, kind of, I was thinking through like, you know, I want to do this nine card print and play design contest that was hosted on board game geek. I think they do it every year or maybe even multiple times a year. Really fun. Highly recommend, you know, any budding game designers out there who want to like dip their toes in game design. Awesome way to do it. Um, and I was kind of thinking about like, what are little games that we sort of like play in our day-to-day life, right? Our walking around life. Uh, and the, one of the things that jumped out to me was like when you're boarding an airplane and this is like, I don't know if this is the same in many other countries around the world, but we have a specific airline in the United States called Southwest where you don't get assigned seats. You instead just get a number, basically the order of which you get to go onto the plane, and then you can take any available seat. So uh, in the part of the country I live, the Midwest, Southwest is like one of our main uh, airlines to get around. And so I you know, take that frequently. Uh, and every time you board a Southwest flight, you're doing this little game where you're looking around and you're trying to evaluate like what is the most ideal seat, right? Like ideally I want, an aisle or a window seat, right? Those are very much preferable to me than a middle seat. So that was sort of the idea, the spark of my game. And then, you know, from that, I was able to kind of come up with this visual idea of like, okay, it's a bunch of people getting onto a plane, trying to pick the very best seat for them. And I thought, what would that look like? Uh, So ultimately that became like, you know, rolling dice, the dice represent people going into these empty spaces for seats. Um, So it was kind of, you know, I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think it really like the visual of that was sort of my second step in the design as well. That's really interesting. Also, it's so funny. It's, I'm glad that you've confirmed officially now on the on air that it was somewhat inspired by Southwest because when I re- read the rules, I remember thinking, oh, it's like we're Southwest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought about like, yeah, I want to, I don't know, call like try to come up with like some pun on Southwest Airlines that I couldn't think of anything good. That's okay. We can't all be point salad. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, should we pivot, Jake, to talking about games that we admire that we think have strong visual design? And then maybe if we have time at the end, we'll, we could each mention like one idea of just like off the cuff, a cool visual design pr- prompt game idea. 
What do you think? Okay, that sounds good. And I just surprised Jake on the air with come that up idea. with something on the cuff. Yeah. Yep. You know, a lot of people listening at home might know, not know this, but we don't have writers. You know, all these ideas are our own. So when no one's gonna with... believe you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna go first. Jake, have you ever played more? Th- have you played Wolfgang Warsh games beyond uh, Gonshan's Clever? I have in fact played this game that you're about to talk about and it's not the mind it is the quacks of quedlinburg what what's like your favorite thing about the quacks of quedlinburg probably like the decision making of you know what ingredients to buy and and put into my bag i've only played this game once at a convention i too have only played this game once at a convention and that is also my favorite thing about this game but the thing i I got the answer right (laughs) well i mean i just wanted to know literally what you're yeah yeah. but the thing i remember most about it is the cauldron and yeah when you're when you're drawing things out of so this is a bag building game where you're trying to basically like you're you're trying to fill your bag with different ingredients and when you pull those ingredients out you're trying to set collect almost different ingredients as they come out of your bag and you're filling right. up a cauldron in, in front of you and this game that cauldron it's a personal play space where you're putting all of the ingredients that you're pulling out of your bag there's something about the the pieces they wrap around the cauldron i think from the center outwards in this sort of spiral um and there's something about that cauldron as being the center of what's in front of you that to me is just this perfect example of, of visual design because that's what enticed me about the game. It's what pulled me in and made me want to play the game. Uh, and I think that the decisions in the game are not, it, that's incidental, right? It doesn't matter. But the idea of being at a table, putting together potion ingredients, pulling them out, seeing how they interact in this cauldron, I just think is such a cool table to sort of look at um the more people you play with the more cauldrons that kind of end up at the table uh and then quacks kind of does another cool thing which is that there's these recipes they're essentially the ingredients that you play with in a given game but those are put on little book tiles and they don't sell it perfectly but i think quacks in general has this really interesting layout on the table and when you walk by it makes for such a strong convention game because of that unique player board of having a cauldron in front of you so i think it's just fun it's what pulled me in about it it's what i remember most about it outside of that core mechanism of your bag building with different ingredients and it's just cool it's a if you're going to put a track in your game it's even better if you can put a track in your game in a cool way right like quacks does it with a cauldron great western trail has a pun with having the track be a train that you're trying to move down. And I think that for me, Quax's cauldron just works. It works really well. Yeah, I think it's cool too. Um, yeah, having like having everything situated right in front of you, right? It gives you that sense of like, yes, I'm I'm building my own special like witch's brew or whatever. Yeah. Uh, in a way that might not, you know, if we we're doing on a shared player space or something, you know. Or yeah. if the cauldron was just like small, you know, it could be a much smaller thing. But the fact that they like, you know, gave it the size to, to be able to take up such a predom- pr- pronounced space on the table, I think it's important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Imagine if it was a workshop in the center of the table, just a regular rectangle, and you were moving down a, sh- a track and everyone had their own track. All of a sudden, the game just doesn't have the same impact. Totally. It's not, not quite the same. Quacks obviously is like at this point a huge meg. I don't know if it's like a mega hit. I don't know what the barometer for that is, but like to me, it, it has that sense of like a game that's been a big hit in the hobby. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah I think yeah. some of you know one of my 
it's kind of one of the games I'll even hear people say like now when I mentioned that I'm, you know, into board games, like, oh yeah, I played Quacks. Have you played Quacks of Quedlinburg? Uh, so I think it has that kind of like crossover appeal to people. And in my mind, this is a little controversial, maybe not like my favorite game in the world from a decision-making perspective. So I think that that, like this next game, I'm going to talk about my first game is some, is some, is kind of like clues me in that like they've really got something right with the visual design to, to lift the game up, to create yeah. something better than just the rules. Sure. Um, and so the game I'm going to talk about first is Raiders of the North Sea, a game that we've covered on an episode of Decision Space. A game that uh, I think even recently somebody in our Discord had played it for the first time and was kind of like, huh, you know, I don't know if there's that much here. And to that I said, I sort of agree, but it's still just like a great kind of comfort food game for me. Uh, and what I love most and want to highlight from a visual design perspective is like the depth provided by the board. So the board is set up into really four distinct areas. You've got kind of the foreground, which is where you have all the worker placement spaces. Then beyond that, you have these rating spaces, and each of those are separated. You've got the outpost first, and you've got the, I think, like villages and monasteries. And then finally, last, you've got the fortresses. I'm probably getting the terms of those not exactly right, but each more difficult space to raid is further from those worker placement spaces. And I think that does something really interesting from the visual design perspective. And that works in a couple of key ways. Um, the first is that it gives you really good signposting for your decision-making in the game. If you're doing a turn where you're just uh, building up your supplies, you only look at the foreground. You only are looking at the little town where the uh, Vikings go. If you're doing a raid, and you're early on in the game, you're only looking at the spaces closest to your village. And then towards the end of the game, you're only looking at places that are further away, more valuable. And I think on top of that, which is really helpful for your decision making uh, and, and kind of signposting what you need to be looking at, it also makes it feel, because you're working through the same depth the whole game, it makes it feel more impactful and exciting when you do finally get to go all the way to the edge of the board. You feel like you've really accomplished a lot more, I think, uh, in this game where you have such a great space. And it's a big board too, right? Maybe even a board that's larger than it needs to be. Um, so you really feel like you get to feel that sense, that agency of like, we're traveling far to do this really exciting, you know, final move in the game. And I think it really works. And it's like literally the beginning, the middle, and the end. And yeah. if you if you look at where pieces are, you could tell just by glancing at the board. If you hadn't been sitting there, you could walk up and say, "Oh, they're at this point in the game." And I think that that's another really powerful way in which the visual layout of that board enhanced your ability to understand the pacing of the game. And it's like Jake said, it's signposted in a way. And then brilliantly. Uh, Jake, this is such a good example that I never would have thought of. Did I you, nail it? You nailed I didn't it. know if I was like even on the same page as you. I don't typically think of boards because I think for me, so many board games have boards. Um, but this example just totally nails it and is so interesting because of that. And then interestingly here too, to illustrate the graphic design point, I said we wouldn't talk about graphic design, but Viking, Viking this is abandoned a to the wind. design episode. <laughs> like the fact that, well, 
I think it illustrates the point somewhat, right? That like that visually works with nothing on the board. If it was just a prototype that was mm-hmm. white paper with spaces, you would still have that same pacing effect. And then the graphic design elevates it because the first rating spaces that you're going to get to at the beginning of what's sort of the early game. Oh, that's the shore. And then you have this sort of like middle ground that's up the river. So your Vikings are landing. It's taking them more time. They're going to land on the shore, move up the river. So it's sort of like the graphic design is there to enhance the physical visual design that Shem Phillips did with thinking of laying out the board in this way. Uh, It's just, yeah, great example. I think that the pacing in a board is, is, really powerful for a board game potentially and maybe why people bounce off of a game like lost ruins of arnak where the way that things are laid out in that game and the visual hierarchy there don't quite work maybe for in the same way that they do here yeah i think think that might be right all right what's your next one have you heard of the game string railway jake no never okay this game i'm not surprised you haven't heard of it so this game is a it's i first played string railway maybe eight years ago at this point it is not the best game i've ever played but it is a really interesting game so this game has two components it has tiles and it has string string i knew it yes yeah you got it you got it so everyone uh, the play space is japan and to mark japan you basically put out this really large round string that gets shaped into a, a, a circle on the board and then you also lay out uh, Mount Fuji, which is a brown string that you put in the center of the board that no rail can pass through. And then the rest of the game is laying out these destination tiles, these station tiles uh, that anyone can place their strings to within that open play space of the board. And then we each have our own strings that are different lengths uh, that we can use to try to make connections throughout all of these different locations on the board. The game itself will not knock your socks off. The decisions aren't going to be notable, obviously. But the visual impact of this game is so f- awesome. After you play the game, you have this little rail network laid out on the board. And it's just cool. Walking past it, I think that nine people out of ten would sort of say, that looks awesome. I want to try this. And to the design's credit, it's quick, it's fast, it looks interesting, and it has really phenomenal visual design. This game's visual design is basically how could I recreate a railway network on someone's table, and they nailed it. Nice. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, Well, maybe... I'll be, have the opportunity to watch somebody else play it at some point in the future. And this game enough. also, it, so I'll also say the game we're talking about, String Railway, it plays in 20 minutes. Maybe Jake will watch someone play it at some point. Maybe he'll even play it. We'll see. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, ready for my next game? I'm so ready. Okay, um, so my next game is very much renowned for its visual appeal. Um, and that is Wingspan, the okay game by uh elizabeth hardgraves published by stonemeyer games i always like to include uh the caveat when we're talking about stonemeyer games that jamie is a friend of mine that sometimes i get the opportunity to hang out with and play games or disc golf with so keep that in mind as i talk about this um but here's why i think wingspan fits not just into the category of like incredible art um but i think it fits into visual design because of the way it like makes engine building as like a game mechanism more apparent uh and more accessible to all types of gamers um Mm. sort of with the visual design and and 
By that, I mean, as you're building out your little bird habitats, you're putting new birds into each habitat. And then, uh, so you start on the left and then you go from left to right. And then the game has a mechanism that whenever you activate each habitat, you put your little turn marker that you get, you have like these cubes that you get to use. I don't know. I'm explaining wingspan. I bet a lot of people listening to this podcast are very familiar, probably played it, but you have these wooden cubes. Uh, You have, I think like seven on your first turn and then you get one less on each turn. Um, You put it onto your furthest bird to the right, activate that, move it one to the left, activate that bird, move Mm -hmm. it one to the left, activate that bird until you run out of birds um so i think like to me you like this i'm having a hard time putting this in terms but basically you have this giant personal player board that makes this engine building concept game mechanism uh really engaging really accessible to anybody just by looking at the board you're very easily can see like which of these engines is my strongest engine right it's probably the one with like the most birds um and i think it's uh i think it's a really effective tool for you know, helping people kind of like get into this game. The sort of, that's an interesting comparison because it's almost like Lost, Lost Cities to me too, where the visual hierarchy of, oh, my meadow has four birds now and my forest, I can't remember all the biomes, but my forest has two birds. I probably want to activate my meadow if I can. It just like puts it all really clearly into into the frame for you and sort of tease it up in a way that I think to your point of it makes it more approachable because of the way that you're physically laying out your cards. It just works really well in that way. And I think there are a lot of other like tableau building games. And I know I'm sure there are many other games that do it similarly to wingspan, but there are also a lot of tableau building kind of engine building games where it's like, you just have like a bunch of cards in front of you, or maybe they're sort of like stacked on top of each other. And I think like in a way that doesn't, isn't like as intuitively, like cluing players into like where these synergies are, like what's mm. happening when you activate any kind of uh, part of your engine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so anyway, I think wingspan works in, in that way. My next game is a three part heist game called Burgle Bros by Tim Powers. Have you played this game, Jake? No, but I'm, uh, I, I'm You're familiar. familiar with like what it looks like on the table. And I'm glad we're kind of talking about a game that, takes up more space you know yeah so this game all three dimensions (laughs) so i actually okay so jake is alluding to the fact that brutal bros is a heist game you play through three different floors where you're trying to achieve an objective on each of these different floors and then escape out the 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 ceiling basically the top floor you you exit onto the roof and a helicopter picks you up this is a cooperative game that you're playing with other people kind of in the style of like an ocean's 11 maybe And when I play this game, the three spaces are laid out in parallel because I don't have the special edition uh, tiers that Jake is talking about where you get to physically lay out the different floors in rungs of... How do I talk about this? Help me out here, Jake. It's It's like a a tower. It's like a tower. Yeah. Uh, That physically occupies three different floors. So you can see uh, yourself moving up, working towards leaving out the roof on a helicopter. But, but apparently it, when I play, you're not talking about that. Well, I think that the point works, whether or not it's laid out vertically on a table using a tower or horizontally <laughs> on a table, just first floor, second floor, third floor. Uh, 
which is to say that it, this is sort of actually similar to the Raiders of the North Sea example, and that it sort of lays out your beginning, middle, and end. It paces you. Um, you sort of have these three different beats that are kind of the arc, and progressively you, the floors get more difficult typically, especially in the base layouts. It's been a long time since I've played it. The game also uses the components that it uses. So it uses tiles and then wood pieces to make walls. And I think that to me, when I first saw Burgle Bros, what sold me was not the pitch of it being a heist game, was not the pitch of it being super fun, but I just looked at it and visually I was sort of re pulled in by how it occupied this space on the table, these sort of three different grids that you were going to be able to navigate. I, I don't know that I had seen a game that was creating this physical space that the players were going to navigate by randomly laying out tiles um, and then having those spaces be connected, but only via a, la a stairwell, right? When you go up a stairwell from the first floor, then you move over to the second array of tiles or grid of tiles. And then when you go up the, the stairwell, the second stairwell, you go up to the next one. I don't know. It just works really well. I think it's very visually appealing. I really like Burgle mm -hmm. Bros. For me, that's one of the more memorable things about the game. And the AI mechanism about the guards. Also cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a game I'm definitely interested to try at some point. Um, but I haven't had the opportunity yet. Okay, ready for my next one? Yes. Alright, so this is another game that we've covered on this very podcast and it is underwater cities um and there are a couple of things too on this one that i think are really interesting and cool visual design elements one we've talked kind of ad nauseum on the episode about how great the mechanism is of like this you every turn you're playing a card and if it and activating a space and if you mm. color match your card to the space that you're taking you get to do both actions Otherwise, you just get to do the action of the activation space, not the card. Um, so I think that's kind of cool visual design. Again, sort of like signposting players into like, hey, try to make these decisions. And, and it's like literally just like at its core, like if you just are matching colors, which is, you know, that's something we do with babies. Um, <laughs> like you're you're doing pretty decently in the game. Uh, so that, I think that's nice. But the other thing, and I think what I really want to kind of key into for the visual design element is the individual player boards where you're actually building your underwater cities. So this is like the namesake of the game. And I think what it does really interesting from a visual design element is it gives you like literally the outline of a city, right? It's, and uh, I, I played it in person with like the deluxe edition. I don't know if all editions of the game have this, but this had like kind of like a dual layer player board. So it's like mm. actually recessed areas into that. So not only is it showing you like a shadow of like, this is where a city could be. And this is where, you know, three buildings attached to it could be. It's actually like kind of recessed into the board, which gives it that even more satisfying feeling when you're finally like plopping down your symbiotic dome, you know, to create the city. And it's got all the spaces for tunnels between which you need to, you know, link back to your home city so that everything is attached, connected to your network and producing. Um, so I think that in and of itself is giving you this like really awesome feeling of like potential prom and then like a potential and then promise fulfillment as you are filling it up and like creating this. And as you're filling up, the game just keeps rewarding you like, cool, you're like getting more points and you're producing more stuff. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bam. And 
even one step further on three different areas of your board, it tells you like there's going to be this like really awesome bonus, like when you connect to this, right? So that's even further accentuating what I think is already like this really awesome design of giving players like promise. Um, And I, so, you know, so it's a, it's a visual design thing and also like just like good endorphin firing game design thing. And I think those work hand in hand in this case to create just like a really compelling uh, visual and also game experience. And as you lay out your underwater cities, you're physically putting in new domes and tunnels, like Jake said. And I think that this game looks really compelling how it was published with these plastic pieces. But I think that if you, if I had had the opportunity to play test this game as a prototype, whatever was there as a prototype, whatever little paper pieces, even at the end of the game, your city would still look cool because of the way that these spaces are, of the way that the tunnels were laid out, that were surely there in the prototype. Just the physically building of a city is visually so fun. And seeing that story told, it's just a slam dunk. And Uh, all it is, is like a one big circle and then three small circles, you know, and then a rectangle that connects you to the next big circle with three small circles around it, you know. So really simple, like geometric elements like that could easily have been just ported straight from you know the graph paper or whatever yeah uh Suchia originally laid out that shape in i think also there's this visual complexity to the city once you're done that one makes you feel accomplished and two sort of if you're an outsider looking at the game signals appropriately that it is a is it, it's a heavier game and i think that there's this beautiful sort of synergy there between the visual layout of what's going on and the weight of the mechanisms that are there in a way that elevates the game for me. And Underwater Cities is a game that I really love. And I think a huge part of that is just getting to see what I've made, even if I'm playing it mostly digitally. Yeah, really good. Okay, my next game. I'm going to talk about Keyflower next, which it's like swimming (laughs) up a river on this podcast because my co-host here... Jake does not love Keyflower. And I think Rolling Jake my is, eyes. is sick of Keyflower. It's fine. I talk about the same games all the time, too. I'm interested to hear your case for this because Keyflower, to me, looks like a mess. Like, I would say, like, the visual design of this game, to me, is off-putting much more than it is, like, calling me to, to play it. So, anyway, with that <laughs> out of the way, Brendan, why is this game a great example of visual design? So, I think for, for me, the mess on the board... Keyflower is a game made up of hexes, primarily. Hexes and meeples. That makes up the vast majority of components that you're going to be interacting with, right? Um, and one really cool thing about this game is that it's a two to six player game and there's a bidding mechanism, but everyone shares the same color of meeples. Uh, there's red, yellow, and blue meeples. There's also green meeples in the game. Uh, and we bid with those meeples. So if I'm not represented by a player color, how are we going to track when I use those meeples to bid for a space? The brilliant thing about Keyflower is that you are using them. Every side of a hex corresponds to a player's to a player on the board. If there's six players playing, there's six spaces on the hex. Uh, if there's two players playing, you just do the side of the hex pointing closest to you. Uh, so for me, part of the visual design working is just the visual signifier of using the hexes as a mechanism for tracking those auctions. It's so It makes the game parsable in a way that otherwise wouldn't be. And then also, Jake the hater, we're gonna ignore what he said, I think that for me, I really like that this game, I have my personal village made up of tiles 
Uh, it's fun to ha see everyone's villages grow over the course of the game as you acquire new tiles and add them. I like that you have all of the massive tiles, as Jake called it, in the center, both new tiles that you're bidding on and the boats up at the top. I guess I like a mess. You should see my desk at work. I like a mess. Uh, so seeing Keyflower on the table is visually enticing for me, both because of the way that that meeple bidding mechanism harmoniously works with the form of hexes in a way that feels novel and interesting and also provides information in a way that would otherwise be pretty much untrackable or burdensomely trackable. Uh, and then two, I like the way your cities grow. I like the villages grow. And the barf of tiles is a, a vomit of possibilities. Oh, I wish we could redo that. I don't want to talk about barf and wow. vomit. You're really making this sound good. No, I think that's totally fair. I mean, like, I think where I just get stuck is like you say, like, it makes it easier to parse. And I've just like never got there to where mm, I feel like sure. I'm parsing everything that's happening here. Um, I mean, it's like a cool way to like represent an auction. We've got your like meeples on like your side of the board. Um, I don't know. Or, or your side of each individual tile, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's enough. I'll stop hating on Keyflower for this episode. But come back next week for more. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I've, I've got like one more I really want to talk about, but maybe two with time. Um, okay. So the next one on my list is one of my very favorite games. And the reason I'm bringing this up for visual design is because something that I've heard uh, and I can attribute this to shut up and sit down. I think it was Quinn's who said it, but I don't know. But what they said, and I'm paraphrasing here, and I could be getting this wrong because uh, this is coming straight from my memory, but something around along the lines of like the most like engaging games at the table are, are like our boards that are either like a little bit too small for mm -hmm. what's going on or like bigger than you'd expect. Um, and I think like, the appealing thing about a board that's like a little bit smaller than perhaps it could be is it like brings people's like heads together, right? It makes it more of like this shared play space experience. And the game in my collection that like evokes this feeling the most to me is Broom Service. Um, so Broom Service is another game we've covered on this podcast. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one uh, if you want to learn more about this game. But essentially, the board just shows different uh, territory types. You've got prairies, forests, mountains, and hills, I believe. Yep, yep, um, yep. <laughs> and, and everything is just like very much like jammed together. You've got... Uh, two starting places each player has two witches so if you're playing like a four-handed game uh, where i think that broom service can really sing at higher player counts you've just got a ton of little miniatures that are very quickly like spreading around butting up against each other uh, all over this board and so i think just like the smallness of it in and of itself creates like a really like endearing quality um and then I think also the second point I would make about the visual design on this one is I think the game also does a good job of like, it, it does the same thing that like Raiders of the North Sea sort of does, which is like the further mm. you get from where you started, uh, point values just ever so slowly kind of increase in a sort of intuitive way where you're just starting to feel like the more, the further out I go, like the better uh, the, the return on that like investment of like time and, and energy to like get all the way out here to the southwest corner of the board um, and it's also just like super fun like 
grim sort of fairy tale style vibes uh you know just a game that like visually i think like what's like a really fun visual game was a good visual design type of experience and i look at myself room service might be like one of my favorites for this category i had no idea where you were going with this and then when you mentioned the small board i was completely on board just because the best you're so i hadn't ever considered that you're so right drake the best small the best part about boards is when they vacuum the table in and the small boards if done right totally if it's still legible right yeah it has to and room service is so in that sweet spot it really does pull everyone in and it's uh yeah that's great i think some of the other stuff you said is graphic design but i'm so sold on the board (laughs) (laughs) this i'm gonna do one final example really quickly um since I already talked about Azul at the top of the show. And that's, I think that this might be an example of something that was added after the fact. Obviously, like Jake said at the beginning, we don't know where design and where production matters, but this could... I think this might also be the example from that like very same shut up and sit down as oh, really? like the big, like the bigger than you expect for it. Yeah, yeah. Because this board did not need to be that big uh, in this <laughs> game. But I think that this example of what I'm going to talk about, there's a, a good chance it was added by the publisher and that's fine because it still has a, a visual impact that's really strong. And I think that you could mimic this if you are going to design, try to attack a game from a visual design perspective. And I'm talking about El Grande, classic area control game. And I'm talking specifically though about the Castillo. The Castillo is a, a piece, it's a, it's a physical object that sits off to the side of the board that periodically players will take cubes that they're going to, they want to place on the board uh, and they're going to chuck them in the Castillo because at the end of a round, the Castillo opens up and these knights flood out onto the table and completely change the board state. So while you're playing this physical piece, that's three dimensional off to the side is looming over the board. It's impact threatening to change everything. And mechanically at the same time, you know that all of those cubes that have been dumped in there, the impact of those also looming over the board, clouding the decision space, making it fuzzy because you're going to simultaneously move that in. And I think this is just this beautiful marriage of this visual piece that was added, allowing it to sort of loom over the table. And what that mechanically is doing that works so well. Uh, and it's just it's just stark enough to remind you like oh yeah that's coming oh it's i don't know and it's it's really really good and when you think about el grande it's the thing that jumps to mind also the board being too too good also jake my mom's coming to visit oh nice and i think we're gonna play el grande we'll see i'll tell you heck yeah yeah you'll have to let me know how that goes but it is like a delightfully big board too which kind of gives that effect of like you know you're like these heads of state or something you're like yeah. from in like the war room and like game of thrones sure. like looking out at this like giant board and you're like kind of sitting back and thinking like three troops to the castillo you know or whatever i think um, that from a visual design perspective i'm really glad you mentioned the board uh, the map because i think the original version of this is sort of maps on a on a board right that that does what we're talking about that's the like played into trope of visual design is your board is a map and maps it on <laughs> tables right but it 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 achieves the point who doesn't like sitting around a map it's fun i'm gonna close out the episode with one final game if that's okay with you and i don't know if this fits in with what we're talking about at all or not so you tell me but this is a game that like evokes a very specific tone with 
And I feel like this is more a production choice potentially than anything else. But I think it's a game with striking visual design, and that is Shobu. So if you haven't played Shobu, it's an abstract strategy game where you have two wooden boards that sit in front of you, a light wood and a darker stained wood. Your opponent has a lighter stained wood and a darker stained wood board in front of them. And in between you two is a rope that does absolutely nothing. Serves no purpose in the game besides to sit there and denote which two boards are in front of which person, I guess. Um, And on top of that, you might think, okay, this is a game like uh, checkers or a chess. So there's probably little tiny pieces or little tiny, uh, you know, checker, checker circles, black and white or whatever. No, this game does eschews that for instead using literal rocks. Little black rocks or little white stones. And those are your player pieces instead. And all of this comes together, I think, to create like, like it creates like just like a much more serious, like, and thoughtful tone than if like, you know, this game could easily have been like little tiny uh, troops or it could have been, um, you know, evil kind of style figures or good figures or you know, red pieces and blue plastic pieces, pawns, whatever. And like none of those choices would have like evoked the same kind of like feeling Concept. of like, like, all yeah, like, uh, like this is a game that deserves thought. And also it feels like a game that's probably been being played for a thousand years, even though it was designed and published in 2019. Yeah, that's, uh, it's really interesting. I think that even for me, in addition to those things too, Jake, the fact that the game is these four four by four grids, each separate, but all laid out. There's this visually enticing um, symmetry to what's going on on the table. And the rope kind of emphasizes the symmetry. And then the rocks in their own way, I think the rocks, like you're saying, are more a production decision, but like kind of push back on that symmetry of sort of like these are not regular shapes in a way that right, is like, well you're playing really with stimulating. components that are literally yeah. thousands of years old sure <laughs> right, yeah. right like it, yeah uh so i think your brain kind of like okay this is probably the the pawns that were used uh in a literal like ancient civilization era game you know totally. we're, we're playing with them now so i just think it's cool also, just I like bringing up Shobu whenever I can because I think it's like an incredible game. I think it's one of my favorite abstract strategy games out there. It can be had very cheap, and I just think more people should check it out. It's a smirk and laughter game who is a Connecticut publisher, uh, and I really admire them and the work that they do. And yeah, Shobu also, I think that... Have simple- you played it? I haven't played it, but you've talked about it enough on the show that I, I really I, I want to play it. That you feel like you have? <laughs> no, I don't feel like I have yet, but I, I feel like I have too. Um, I, I don't know. There's just It's just complex enough, right? Like You can tell it's a simple game. It's an abstract, simple-ish game looking at it, but it's also just complex enough that I feel like it's signaling the headspace that you're going to be in, that it's thinky, that it's... I, I, I don't know. I really I, like how the game looks visually on the table with the four yeah. grids. When I beat somebody at Shobu, like I feel like I'm better at the art of war than they are, you know. Wow. You know, and like, yeah. I, like it literally like gives you that type of like agency of like 
this because you have to do like in a defensive move and then an aggressive move you know like you're really like playing defense and like it's uh yeah it it, it demands this sort of thought and really puts you in that headspace of like man like i bet like ancient japanese monks would be proud of this little maneuver i pulled off here so are worrying japanese monks that you feel like when you win that's the product of the mechanics more than the visuals well, it's I think bold. it's both. It's bold I think it's you. both. Yeah. Like, because if yeah, right. Like, if the, I mean, because this could have been like little standees, right? Like one side sure. is zombies, like one side sure. is like the survivors, and the game would play exactly the same. And I would not feel like it is probably like a super thoughtful, like elegant, like experience. You know, I wouldn't like. I don't know. I would feel differently about it. Like, totally. I, you know, that'd be a different thing. Okay. Can I really quickly? I know we're tight on time. Pitch you an idea. Oh, I Visual forgot. Design oh, idea. no, I didn't think about this at no, all. No, you're good. Maybe I can do two. Maybe I can do two. If you, if you okay, know okay, okay. Here's okay. my first one. I want right. to play a game, Jake, where what you're looking at on the table is a city skyline, but you can see into every all the different buildings, the apartment buildings, the office buildings, etc. And what you're doing in that game. So like you're visually looking out like as if you were at a vantage point that was straight on with these different buildings and you can see into the different rooms that are illuminated and you're trying to create certain relationships between the people in those different spaces. So you're moving people into them and you're structuring relationships within those spaces and imagining how these different private spaces are playing out and trying to create different relationships between the people. I think that sounds fun and cool. That sounds that sounds really cool. All right, I came up with one too. I yes, wasn't even listening good. to you because I was so deep in but thought. You said it I'm sounds sure really you, cool. Yeah, I know because I'm <laughs> such a professional podcaster. You know, I'm doing banter with you. Okay, uh, what's your idea? <laughs> okay, so my idea. I've always loved, like, uh, especially as a kid, but even uh, now, like, uh, and like the anime shows that were really just a. Oh, like resolving a fighting tournament bracket. So like okay. the original Dragon Ball is sure. pretty much this. Yeah. Um, I, I think the same for like uh, Yu Yu Hakusho. They sure. have like sort of like yeah. the dark arts tournament type of yeah, thing. Yeah. I was obsessed with that as a kid. Half of Yu-Gi-Oh's tournament. Pokemon has this. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot. Of, All the Shonen like anime a, stuff. Yeah, yeah, It's a trope, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what about like the board is just a bracket? Yeah, heck right? yeah. And Absolutely. in the game, it just you resolve that bracket. I don't know any mechanisms. Maybe like you have an individual fighter. You are a fighter mm-hmm. that you're working through the bracket uh, and you've got opponents around the table working through there. Or maybe you have like a team uh, or whatever. I don't know. But like the board is a bracket and you resolve it till you have an ultimate champion at the end. This is such a, I love this idea so much. Also for the, for the audience, how many fantasy football leagues are you in currently? <laughs> Oh me? Yeah, you. Um, I'm, <laughs> I thought you were asking them. <laughs> Please come to the Discord. Tell us all about it. I'm in. I'm in five. That's but a also, lot. I and also I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, which is like home of the Kansas Jayhawks. So like, they're a really, really good college basketball program yeah. in the United States. And every year we have like March Madness, which is like basically Lawrence, Kansas. Like everyone just takes off work for the month, so we can like play our little like bracket challenge gambling <laughs> side side bets uh and, and watch college basketball so uh, there's a lot of reasons that this like sort of like bracket resolution uh idea like just speaks to like the core of who i am as a person i dig the board i dig the idea i want to play it when you listen to to my idea back when you're 
you're, you're gonna mm-hmm. like it. We'll no, see. I, I heard it. I heard. I was God dang it! You know, you're looking down at the buildings. Thing. We're talking about putting people in there, little love triangles. You know, it's gonna be great. I've been exposed. Okay, well, until next week. Reminder: waning decision spaces next week. It's already changed the way thinking about prepping for this episode, Jake, has changed the way that I think about waning decision space games and sort of unlocked a new level of understanding about them in a way that I'm really excited about. So I can't Holy wait to talk about you and Jamie with that. Holy crap. We can go even deeper. Even deeper. <laughs> We're just scratching the surface. All right. All right. Um, well, anyway, that's it for this week's episode of Decision Space. A little bit different. You know, If you like it, let us know. If you don't like it, you know, now you have a second chance to let us know. And if you um, want to play one of those games, let us know. Yeah, come play games with us. Uh, we've got links in the description of this podcast. We're both on Twitter. Uh, we got a Twitter for the show, even Decision Ba. What are we? Are we just yeah, yeah, you got it. Decision Spa. Yeah. <laughs> What's our Twitter? Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Oh, and thanks to Hembry for intro and outro music. Reach out. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>